Well, if you have your Bible with you, why don't you go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 24. That is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And so whether or not you brought one, you want to pull out one of the Pew Bibles or open an app on your phone, I just encourage you to have the text open as we read it so that you can follow along. But before we read the text, I want to give a little bit of context to the text, a little bit of background about what is going on. You see, in Exodus 24, we find ourselves as the Israelites have come out of Egypt. They have been enslaved for 400 years. For 400 years, they served at the taskmasters in Egypt, bidding to Pharaoh's will whatever he wanted done. But then, the man Moses pulls them out of Egypt and begins to lead them into the wilderness. Leads them to Mount Sinai. To the very place where Moses, 40 years earlier, encountered God in the burning bush. And so once again, we find the Israelites at the foot of this mountain. After Moses had gone up and received the Ten Commandments, and he's come back down and he's among the encampment, but there's something that we need to grasp in all of this before we really talk about the text. In Israel's 400 years in slavery, they had completely lost their own identity. They no longer had an idea of what it meant to be God's people, to belong to Yahweh. In fact, when Moses went to them to bring them out, they asked the question, well, who sent you? And God told them, tell them, I am sent you. I am who I am. Which is where we actually get the name Yahweh from. I am is bringing you out of your captivity. But I'm calling you, not just out of captivity, but I'm calling you into something more. You see, you lost yourselves in those 400 years. You forgot what kind of people you were. You forgot the rhythm that I had set in your heart to worship me. To worship me. See, over the last several weeks, we began this series talking about rhythms and how God specifically designed rhythm as a means of spiritual transformation and spiritual formation in our lives. And we first started by looking at how rhythm was established in the beginning in creation, and how the first rhythm God set up was a rhythm of Sabbath, taking moments of rest in our lives to be set apart for God. And then last week we talked about the rhythm of fellowship 
of gathering together with one another, the importance of fellowshipping as a matter of spiritual transformation and to set up a rhythm of gathering together, sitting at the table. We looked at the story of the Last Supper. Now at the Last Supper, Jesus sat at the table with his disciples and after they had broken bread and shared the cup, they were talking amongst one another. Like you would do with your friends and family when you gather together at the table. And we shared communion with another last week. And so there is an importance to having rhythms of fellowship in our life. Of gathering together with like-minded believers to encourage one another. And we said it's not to give advice Not to to share infinite wisdom and to fix one another, but simply to reveal God to each other. To be each other's encouragement in times of need. A rhythm of fellowship. And we even said one of those ways is the church body. The ecclesia coming together once a week to share in fellowship in this gathered space. But now, when they gather together, what is the purpose of their gathering? What does that lead us to more? What is the rhythm all about? And so Israel had lost their identity. They lost their spiritual rhythm while they were in Egypt. I love what Rory Nolan says about this in his book, Transforming Worship. He says, after all... Israel had been entrenched in a pagan society for over 400 years. And judging from their actions in the desert, they no longer consistently reflected the piety of their faith tradition. For example, their constant complaining throughout their sojourn demonstrated a blatant lack of trust in God, especially in light of all the miracles he performed to rescue them. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about myself a lot. And I know how easy it can be for me to be a grumbler and a complainer. And particularly, I can recognize that in myself, particularly when it comes sometimes to matters of the church. And I can find myself really latching on to some really small, insignificant, superfluous things And wanting to complain about them. And wanting to just be like, well, why don't we do it this way? Why aren't things like that? I find my desire for preference creeping into my worship, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, my worship of God. And therefore, I directly associate my desires, my preferences, the way I want to do things, as worshipful. Whereas I think God is calling us to something more beyond ourselves. And just like the Israelites, when we fall into a pattern of complaint, we've probably fallen out of a rhythm of worship. We've fallen out of a rhythm of recognizing God for who God is and giving Him 
what he is deserving of. And so your complaining might say more about you than it does about God. But I offer this. If you can recognize that in yourself, then you're in a good place. Because it then means you can do something about it. It means you can reestablish the firm and good rhythms that God desires for you in your life. And so let's read this text this morning from Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. So hear these words. And then God said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and you all shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to Yahweh, but they shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. And then he arose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with the twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And so Moses took the blood of the, and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. Let's go to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Good and gracious God, as we hear these words this morning, though they deal with old covenant, we know that there is a new covenant truth that is revealed in them. And God, we ask that our hearts and minds would be open to hear and to receive what it is that you want to speak to us and speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to our strength, so that in turn we may love you all the more, all the more truthfully, all the more heartfelt, Lord. May our worship this morning be poured out unto you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. And so with no recognized tradition, the Israelites come out of Egypt. And they find themselves parked at the foot of a mountain. And this mountain is where Moses keeps going up and coming down and a cloud is sitting on this mountain and it's rumbling and grumbling and they know that Yahweh has come to meet them in this place. But what I love, what I love about it is that it's in this place, in this moment, that God has come to establish a covenant with them. 
And the way in which he establishes covenant with them is in the context of a worship service. It's in the context of worship. He says, hey, Moses, I want you and Aaron and all these other priests and elders, I want you to come up the mountain and I want you to begin to worship me. I want you to worship me. And while you're worshiping Moses, I want you to come a little bit closer to me. And when you draw near, I'm going to cut a covenant between myself and Israel. I'm going to cut a covenant between me and you. And what's great about it, and we've talked about covenant so many times, but I'll just give us a quick refresher. A covenant is a contract. But it's a little bit more than a contract because the word covenant in Hebrew comes from the word to cut. And that word to cut has a very specific imagery associated with it. Because the way that a contract was ratified in the Old Testament was that you would bring a sacrifice. And with that sacrifice, you would cut it into two pieces. And you would set those pieces apart from one another. And then the person that is to uphold the contract, the covenant, would walk between those two pieces that have been cut. And essentially, what you were saying was, if I break covenant with you, then may what happened to me be what happened to the sacrifice. As in, I'll be cut in two. If I don't keep covenant, cut me in half. Can you imagine if we signed business contracts like that today? I don't think there would be a business contract ever broken. Might be really good. Might be really bad. I don't know. But that's how it was in the Old Testament. That two people would come together and a contract would be made between them. And then they would take an offering and they would cut it in two and then the one that was to uphold the contract would walk through it. Well, who's the one that's to uphold the contract? Well, there's lots of different relationships that exist in the Old Testament. But the primary one that we're going to look at is the one between sovereign and vassal. That is, the one between a ruler and the subject, the king and his people. And typically, when a covenant was made between a, zo- a sovereign and a vassal, the covenant would be cut and the vassal would be the one to walk through it because the vassal was the one under the authority of the sovereign. And if they broke contract, then the sovereign had every right to have the life of the subject. Because oftentimes the contract was made because the sovereign offered something, whether it's protection resources that they had that the vassal did not. And so the one that had the authority didn't have to walk through the pieces because they were providing something. And the one that was receiving was the one that was supposed to walk through because then they were supposed to obey all the terms of the contract. Makes sense, right? Are you following? I assume that's a yes. Good. But here is what is inconceivable. 
when they have this wonderful worship service on the mountain of God, and Yahweh himself calls Moses to come near because he's ready to cut a covenant with him and the people of Israel to reestablish rhythm in their life. When he goes to cut that covenant, God is the sovereign, just to be clear. He is the king. He is the ruler. He is sovereign. He's the one with all the power and all the authority, and Israel has nothing. They have absolutely nothing. But in this covenant moment, God says, I will make the covenant, and I will keep it. I will make a covenant with you. No longer are the people required to uphold the contract. The sovereign says, I will be the giver of all that you need, and I will make sure that I uphold the contract. This is unheard of. An unspeakable covenant. Nothing is guaranteed then for God. Because he both, both is the giver of all things and the upholder of all of them. And this all happens at a worship service. And so, covenant community has become Inextricably, inextricably linked to worship. So to be in a covenant community with one another and to be in covenant with God means to worship. He made them one in the same. And so when you worship together, you recognize covenant and you gather as a covenant community. And when you recognize covenant community, you worship because of all that God's done. In fact, let's add a definition to worship. I love verse 3. It says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will do. So there becomes an element then, of obedience. But for the covenant to stand, they don't have to be perfect. He calls them to it. But he knows that they're not. They're human. In fact, if you just turn a couple chapters later, you might have heard this story. I don't know. But it's about a golden calf. And Moses kind of went up the mountain for a few days, and the people got concerned. And they're like, you know what? We'll just make our own God. Let's build a cow. And we're going to bow down to that. They just said that they're going to do all that God said. And then they make an idol. We're human. We're fickle. God knows it. That's why he keeps covenant for us. But worship has this element of acknowledging, though, that he is worthy of the worship. 
that he is worthy of us doing all that he has asked us to. In fact, Donald Whitney in Spiritual Discipline says this, the word worship descends from the Sax- Saxon word, and I'm going to butcher this, Skype, which later becomes worth-ship. And to worship God means to ascribe the proper worth to God, to magnify his worthiness of praise, or better, to approach and address God as worthy. And so when we understand worship from this place, from this context, then everything begins to make more sense. So in the covenant, sovereign, vassal relationship, God holds covenant. He keeps covenant. And we respond with worship because he's worthy because he does something we can't. God is worthy because he does what we can't. He keeps covenant. When we fail and we disobey, we worship him because he keeps covenant. He keeps us under the arm of his wing. Praise the Lord. He keeps covenant to us even when we fail. And so he is worthy of our worship. What's more, have you ever noticed in our bulletin, there's little headings now over the movements of the service. But in the very first heading, in the subheading, it says, God invites us. God invites us. Why does he invite us? Because he keeps covenant. And so it's his invitation to come to him. And he's worthy of worship because he calls us into his presence. He wants people like me, who are wretched in all of his ways, to draw near. Wow. God wants me to draw near? I should worship him. He's so worthy of that worship. So what is that? end up looking like for us? How are we called to worship? Well, first and foremost, John chapter 4, 23 through 24 is the story of this woman at the well. And she's from Samaria. And they don't go to Jerusalem to worship in the temple like the Jews do. And so they're counted as less than the Jews. But Jesus says to her in verse 23 and 24, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So, you're called to worship in spirit and in truth. And you might have heard that before because I also say that a lot of Sundays after the call to worship. 
Now let us worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. But have you ever reflected on what those words might mean? I think there's a lot to unpack in that tiny little phrase, in spirit and in truth. I think first and foremost, in spirit means you can't worship without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be a recognized part of your life. And the good news is that when you confess Jesus as Lord, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. If you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells within you. And therefore, you have the Holy Spirit. What's more, I think the Holy Spirit actually quickens our heart, our mind, our soul, our body to worship. We can't really properly worship God unless the Spirit has quickened it and evoked it within us. How do I know this? Paul writes about it to the Corinthians. He says, you know, nobody can call Jesus Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. Well, what is calling Jesus Lord? It's an acknowledge of his worth and of his role as sovereign, as king, as ruler, and that you are his subject. So it's covenantal. So to be able to call Jesus Lord is also an act of covenant reminding. And you need the Holy Spirit to do that. But I also think it evokes something else. It's not just the Holy Spirit. I think to also worship the Lord in spirit is acknowledging yourself. Because the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. But I think oftentimes we cut that short and it's just, and love your neighbor. And we forget about loving yourself. And I really do believe that worshiping in spirit means that we acknowledge our own selves well when we step into worship. We acknowledge the emotions that we bring in. We acknowledge the baggage that we bring in. We acknowledge the burdens that we have and carry. We acknowledge the hardships. We're not afraid to show our real selves before God with all the emotions we have. And then when we encounter God, we aren't also afraid to share the emotions that we have when we encounter God. I'm going to pick on somebody, Ashley. (laughs) Mimi, too. If you've ever been with them in worship, you know that they're just weeping. But you know that their weeping isn't a sadness. It's a joy found in their heart because of how good God is. Everything that he's brought them through, everything that he's doing, They're not afraid to show that in worship. That is what it means to worship in spirit, to bring your full self before God and allow all your emotions. And maybe it's not joy, but frustration 
And you're just frustrated because the answers you've been longing for haven't been answered yet. And so you just come into worship with like, God, why? I'm just so exhausted. I'm tired. But I'm going to worship you because you're worthy. But just know that my heart is heavy. Come to him like that. That's part of worshiping him in spirit. And I would also argue in truth. Because you're not lying to yourself about what's going on. But in truth is also acknowledging the fullness of Scripture. Believing that this book is true. And that that you're not going to let any of it be put aside because you don't necessarily agree with it. Or because you don't think that it's easy to swallow sometimes. There's hard truth within Scripture. Great. Worship Him. Because he's calling you to. And because he's calling you to obedience to everything written in here. And guess what? You're not going to be able to keep it all perfectly. Praise the Lord, he keeps covenant and we don't. Praise the Lord, he keeps covenant and we don't. And so we worship him in spirit and in truth. I think the other part of truth is that we bring our head, our mind into worship. We don't just worship with our emotions and our feelings, we worship with our head, with our thoughts. We are thoughtful in our worship. I don't have the quote written down, but Donald Whitney also says something along the lines of, if you aren't thinking about God when you worship, then it's not worship. Like, God has to be a part of the thought process when you worship Him, because He's the subject of your worship. He's the one worthy of praise. So he has to be in your head as well as in your heart. So in spirit and in truth. And then the last thing that I want to say is that I think there's also two ways in which we see worship occur in Scripture. The primary way is corporately. It's when we gather together. When the assembly of the people come and we worship the Lord through songs, through hymns, through prayer, through the word, through the preaching and teaching of the word, from the hearing of scripture, to the confession of our mouths and our hearts to the Lord, that is all worship. I don't want us to get confused to think that worship is just when we sing. Worship is whenever we acknowledge that God is worthy. That's worship. And when we come together corporately, I love it because Paul David Tripp says this. He says, this is where corporate worship helps profoundly. The regular gathering of God's people for worship serves to shift your meditation from complaint circling back from the beginning, from complaint to gratitude by reminding you of who you really are and confronting you with the beautiful and faithful mercy of God toward you. As the gospel puts you in your place, it also puts praise in your mouth. And that is a very good thing. Gosh, I love that. I'm going to say that one more time. As the gospel puts you in your place, it 
also puts praise in your mouth. That's so good. In fact, Hebrews uh, chapter 10 uh, reminds us that we need to hold fast. This is verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But all of that is in the context of worship. All of it is in the context of gathering together to worship God and reminding one another that we should worship God and demonstrating to one another how we worship God and helping one another put thought to God when we worship God. But I don't want to neglect that there's also a private devotion that is required. There is a private worship that you have to live in your day-to-day life. You don't just worship God on Sundays. You worship God every day. You worship Him in every moment that you turn your mind to Him. And you remind yourself, He's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my heart. He's worthy of my thoughts. He's worthy of my deeds. He is worthy of my obedience. Those are all acts of worship to God. I actually wasn't going to read this passage, but I think this is a really good uh, time to read it, and so I'm going to read it. So this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I just love this. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves, present your bodies as a sacrifice living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present yourself living, holy, and pleasing. That's what it means to worship God. Living, holy, and pleasing. And again, you're not going to be perfect. You know how I know that? Because I'm not perfect. And all of Scripture tells me we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to have it all together. We're not going to be perfectly obedient. But guess what? I'm going to come back to it. Praise God. He keeps covenant, not us. And so as the covenant people, as covenant partners, we hold one another to worship God because He is worthy. And in our day-to-day life, we worship God in thought, word, and deed. We present ourselves as living and holy and pleasing to God even when nobody else is looking because it's what he is worthy of. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, as you call us to the rhythm of worship in our lives, recognizing that we don't just gather together on a Sunday morning, but you call us in our day-to-day to focus and reflect and turn our mind toward you. Lord, would you uphold us when we fail to do so. But as we fall into a rhythm, Lord, your word is clear. You will transform us every day. In fact, Romans 12 goes on to say in verse 2 that it's through the transforming, through the renewal of our minds that we become more like the image of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, set a rhythm in our hearts to worship you every day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.